Hello, I'm Kate Chavot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. From Foreign Secretary to Prime Minister, Liz Truss leads the UK's new government with historic defence challenges needing immediate action. She's already begun by doing the right things, and that is by having a phone conversation almost immediately with President Zelensky, because it's really, really critical that a country like the United Kingdom continues to give steadfast support to Ukraine. She's promised more money for the forces, but what will that deliver and when? Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark and BFBS reporter Sean Grezchek will explain what's in Liz Truss's packed defence in tray and how we can expect her to handle it. Also this week, Russia is buying millions of rockets and shells for its war in Ukraine. That's no surprise, but the supplier is. It's quite startling, particularly given that there is a comprehensive and mandatory UN embargo on arms exports and imports within North Korea. And a former member of the SBS tells us the extraordinary story of how he's rebuilt his life after being shot in the neck and paralysed. I think I was given a second chance and if I were to throw that away, that's quite insulting. How many people get given a second chance at life? Well, in an already historic year, it's been a pretty momentous week. I'm honoured to take my place as Prime Minister in this House and to take on responsibility at a vital time for our country. With Liz Truss comes a new government with big and difficult decisions to make. And Michael, the headlines have understandably focused on energy prices, the cost of living, the NHS, domestic stuff. But Liz Truss has a lot of historically important defence issues at the top of her intro. She even interrupted her cabinet appointments to talk to the Ukrainian and US presidents. Yes, and it's very interesting that she spoke to uh, President Zelensky before she spoke to the US president. I mean, they have to, she has, has to speak to them both, and that might have just been a timing issue. But I think that is symbolically quite interesting. And that'll go down in history, that the first person she called was Zelensky. And then the very, very first thing she seems to have done was to, li- to write the letters of last resort which all incoming prime ministers have to write to go out to the nuclear submarines to be held on those submarines, telling them what to do in the event of a nuclear attack on Britain that leaves everything else uh, completely obscure from their point of view. And that is a very sobering moment. All prime ministers, Tony Blair talked about it fairly clearly. He said it's a really sobering moment when you sit down, you get briefed by the MOD, and then you decide what to write in the letter. Of course, you can change the letter at any time. But at that moment, you realise that you are responsible for the nuclear safety of the United Kingdom. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Uh, Sean Defence had an unusually high profile in the campaign. And Liz Truss has made some big promises that she now has to deliver on the armed forces. Exactly, Kate. And they come with some pretty hefty price tags. Uh, She's pledged to increase defence spending to 3% of GDP by 2030. At the moment, we spend 2.2%. But her pledge would mean an extra £157 billion. And so with her long list of promises throughout the campaign, quite rightly, many people are asking questions about how that's going to be funded. And in terms of the size of the army, the government obviously set out those plans last year to reduce the size of the regular army, lowering the target size from 82,000 personnel to 72,500 by 2025. But Liz Truss now saying that that's up for review. Yeah, Mike, your former colleagues at Roosie say that extra money could add another 40,000 service personnel and equip them properly. How long would that take to deliver? 
Well, probably up to 2030. Uh, I mean, they've got to spend this money if, they, if they're going to allocate it in eight years. And of course, it takes time to bring on new equipment. And also, of course, a certain amount of this money, if it exists, um, goes into the black hole to actually make good what's not right now. So it will take time. But undoubtedly, if we are to increase the forces on the front line, then they have to be properly structured and there has to be personnel to meet them. So we would be going up to a, an armed forces of about a Hundred ninety thousand with an army that go would go above, I'm sure, the eighty-two thousand mark. But we won't know until the November Comprehensive Spending Review, and then we'll see if this new government really means it. Well, let's bring in Tobias Elwood MP, a former Defence Minister under <coughs> Theresa May, who now chairs the Commons Defence Committee. Good to speak to you, Tobias. I want to get into the big decisions the new Prime Minister is going to have to make in a moment, but just briefly before that, you know Liz Truss better than any of us. So what kind of person is she and how will that shape how she handles defence? Well, thank you for inviting me. I mean, she's one of the most experienced Cabinet member, now Prime Minister, that we have. She's been in government on the front bench for, I think, the last uh, three prime ministers. So uh, she comes with a huge amount of uh, experience at a very difficult time. There's no doubt about it. And what do you see as the top two or three defence decisions requiring rapid action from the prime minister? Her first two calls were to President Biden and, and then to President Zelensky. And perhaps that summarises the importance of us I think rekindling a sense of urgency with our closest security ally on addressing the multitude of, of security challenges that we face, not least Russia. And then you have the operational, the support that we're providing Ukraine itself, which came through the call in President Zelensky to reassure him uh, that Britain's efforts will continue. Of course, on the list should also be the integrated review. What does you do you want from that? What kind of update? Yeah, you I, she's made a commitment for three percent GDP increase. Great to hear that. I've been calling for that for some time. Our armed forces are absolutely overstretched at the moment. The last integrated review meant that uh, huge cuts had to come in to our army, our air force, our navy. I hope some of those cuts will now be reversed or re reconsidered. But let's do this methodically. Let's do this in a logical way. That helps you frame the defence posture, the advance in our architecture that we then need to uh, invest in. And on that promise to grow defence spending to reach 3% of GDP, national income by 2030, uh, what would you want to see the money spent on? Or does it depend on those decisions you've outlined? Yeah, you need to do it in a logical way. I, I think reversing some of those cuts, you know, there's huge pressures on, let's take the Navy, for example. We've got some excellent frigates and destroyers, arguably the best in the world. But we need greater force presence. You need more constabulary duties to be able to patrol, for example, the South China Seas on a regular basis rather than sending an aircraft carrier through. So we need to double the size of the Navy. But I think maybe the Type 31, Type 32s, um, having more modularized capabilities, more force present to be able to provide that maritime surface fleet support uh, to protect you know, our international shipping, keep those trade routes open in the on the Army. Clearly, the cuts in manpower need to be reversed. You know, our forces are overstretched. Situation in Ukraine and indeed Eastern Europe is only going to get more complicated. And then with the RAF, we had a reduction in the F-35s from 138 down to just 48. Let's see if those numbers reversed. When you outline all those competing costs, how much do you think the new money will actually add to capability? And how much do you fear will be swallowed up by the current problems, the budget black holes and procurement problems like Ajax? 
Yeah, I mean, it's good to mention the fact that much as you give money, slide it across the table to the MOD, it must be wisely spent. And Ajax is a great example of uh, where procurement has not gone well. The logic behind not only advancing Ajax, but also replacing Warrior with Boxer, it's not tracked and it hasn't got a big gun on the top. So that changes how you actually do land warfare. And as we've seen in Ukraine, tanks and armoured fighting vehicles are not obsolete. And that increase in defence spending, it is a big promise alongside everything else, cutting taxes, intervening to cap energy bills. Are you actually confident that Liz Trust will be able to keep this promise and increase the spending? Taking the nation with us is absolutely fundamental. If you don't explain to the British people why we must invest in defence, then you're right, there will not be any support, particularly when people want to see the cost of living crisis focused on. But then I would argue to say that our security is our prosperity. It is our economy. The cost of living crisis is caused arguably mostly because of the interruption to democracy in Eastern Europe. You solve that, you stand up to Putin, you actually help our economy here in the UK. Of course, Liz Truss won't be making the big decisions alone. There's a new government, so let's just bring Sean back in to run through the new cabinet. Uh, interesting, Sean, that Ben Wallace, staying as Defence Secretary, is one of only four people to keep the same cabinet job. Absolutely, and he's been leading defence, of course, for the last three years now. And there will be more continuity, Kate, because James Heapy is staying as Armed Forces Minister, but he's also joining cabinet because he's taking over Johnny Mercer's Veterans Minister job. Johnny Mercer clearly very unhappy about being sacked and uh, many of you may have seen that his wife branded Liz Truss an imbecile uh, in a tweet uh, in response to that. But Kate, also note the new Foreign Secretary, James Cleverley, Tom Tugendhat, of course, now Security Minister attending Cabinet, and Penny Mordaunt, former Defence Secretary, who of course stood for the leadership herself, is Commons leader. They all served in the reserves and the Defence Secretary and Armed Forces Minister are obviously both veterans. So a lot of hands-on defence experience in the new cabinet. They released pictures of the first cabinet meeting. You obviously have the big cheeses in the centre, but you had Tom Tugendhat on one side at the very end, and you had James Heapy, who are now attending cabinet. Now, as I say, they're at the on the edges of the, of the room, but they're in the room. And from a military perspective, to have those voices in addition to Ben Wallace, who stays on, I think we can say that the armed forces are very well represented um, now in number 10. You've been a minister in the MOD. Just tell us a bit more about the job of the armed forces minister and what you think about the feasibility of combining it with the veterans minister cabinet role. It is an interesting decision to make. The veterans minister is very overt. It's important that it works with Department of Health because you're dealing with everything from mental health, well-being aspects of it, supporting our veterans and the armed forces minister's role has actually been more, you know, covert. It's been signing off the operations, you know, what our special forces do, where our battalions go to, what's happening in Ukraine, our commitments there and so forth. So two very different aspects of the role. I don't quite understand it myself as to why the two have been merged. Critical with everything that we do in the armed forces is actually making sure it doesn't just sit in the MOD. You know, even our approach to Ukraine isn't just about what the military does. It's about how it fits in with foreign policy, how it fits in with aid, how it fits in with the refugees we look after. There's an entire comprehensive strategy for which the MOD's work must is, is just one part of. And Ben Wallace stays in the top job at the MOD. Do you welcome that? 
Yeah, we need continuity. I mean, massive changes across the entire piece of government, really. So to see some consistency in the MD at this critical time, I think is to, to be welcome. My thanks to Tobias Elwood MP. Of course, the new Prime Minister has experience as Foreign Secretary. It means, for example, she already knows and is known within NATO. She talked up that kind of experience in the campaign. Based on that, what can we expect from Liz Truss on Ukraine and Russia? Sean. Well, Kate, in the final days of her campaign, she spoke of a review of defence priorities following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, saying there may need to be changes to what she described as to reflect the evolving geopolitical landscape. Now, we wait to see precisely what the detail of that will be. But Boris Johnson and Vladimir Zelensky clearly had a very close relationship. And the mood music from her and her team is that she is committed to continuing to support Ukraine. One quote that that stood out, she said, under my leadership, President Zelensky will have no greater ally at this dark hour than the UK. That obviously reflected, as Mike said, that uh, there was a fairly early call to President Zelensky when she became Prime Minister. And the other big one that people look to is China. Has she had much to say about that, Sean? She has. And of course, over the last few weeks, we have seen that escalation of, of tensions. She strongly condemned China's escalation in the region around Taiwan in recent weeks. Um, and while she was foreign secretary, was quite strong on that. She obviously helped to lead the international response to what was happening in her campaign team, promising that she will continue to challenge Chinese aggression. So, uh, yeah, we wait to see the detail of what her precise plans are, but it probably won't take much to eat up all that extra money uh, by the end of the Mm. the decade in in terms of that increase to 3%. Is that enough, some might might ask? Yeah, Mike, um, we've gone through uh, the biggies in this trust as a defence in trade. Anything else hiding in there or anything she should be thinking about that could land in it soon? Two issues of substance. One is that the Western Balkans, Serbia, Bosnia, looks very, very unstable as a result of the war in Ukraine. And I think that may well blow up quite soon and Britain will have to take a view on that. And it'll be very difficult. The other one is defence procurement. Uh, it is, it's no better than it ever was. And if we're going to meet these commitments of uh, 3% by 2030, if that is going to be the policy, then the government has really got to try to get hold of procurement and make it more agile and better and more efficient than it's mm. been able to do over the last 20 years. That's out there. And then the, I think the third thing, as Sean says, is this review of the review. We've had the integrated review. They certainly don't want to rerun it. But the integrated review is a bit like the Bible. It says so much that you can pull out any any interpretation you like from it. And I think what they will need to do, and I was talking to a couple of MOD people yesterday about this, they're all ready to, to go when the Prime Minister gives them some guidance, is to, as it were, comb through the review and pull out those elements that are now bigger priorities than they thought they were last year. Those elements that have got to be done more quickly and then create a sort of mini review around those things to say, okay, well, how can we now action these things, not in six years' time, but in two years' time? And how do you think a trust premiership will be going down among Britain's military leaders right now, Mike? I think just from my own gossip and conversations, Rishi Sunak was regarded as the more naturally competent of the two front runners. Um, And Mm. there's a lot of doubts about Liz Truss's competence. This word competence comes up all the time when people are talking about her. But of the two, she was more internationally minded and defence minded, undoubtedly. And so I think there is a sense that she is more naturally on the side of defence than Rishi Sunak might have been. 
But there is this question is, can she handle it? And of course, you know, she, she's become prime minister at a time which is a manifest crisis for Britain on several fronts. Mm. And so she's going to have to grow into it very quickly. And she's going to have to become a much, much bigger figure than she has seemed to be to most people on her way up to the number 10 steps. Mike, stay with us. Sean, thanks very much for your time. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Now, we've spoken many times before about how the UK and other NATO allies are supplying weapons to Ukraine. We've also discussed how Russia could be running short of munitions, but it appears they also have an overseas supplier, North Korea. The US says the Kremlin is in the process of buying millions of rockets and shells from Pyongyang. Ukraine claims it shows Soviet weapons have exhausted their potential. But we also know restocking at speed is not easy and made harder by Western sanctions on Moscow. So what should we make of it? Joseph Dempsey is a research associate at the IISS think tank. It's quite startling, particularly given that there is a comprehensive and mandatory UN embargo on arms exports and imports within North Korea. So obviously, um, Russia is seeking arms would be a break in them. And particularly being as a security council, that's quite startling. Also, the fact that Russia, one of the biggest armed forces in the world, is actually seeking potentially assistance from North Korea, which is, let's just say, has a massive arms industry um, and standing army. Uh, it's surprising they are going to do business with them and find themselves in a situation that this is actually a realistic option for them. Yeah. And why does Moscow need to do this exactly? Is it an indictment of Russia's own weapons, as Ukraine say? Realistically, it's a bit hard to say exactly what the situation is in Russia and uh, with their stockpiles of ammunition. Um, what we've seen indicated, at least, is that they are in discussions to supply artillery shells and uh, artillery rockets. So we don't quite know exactly what stockpiles that exist within Russia. Estimates put that they're using tens of thousands of artillery shells a day. So if you put an average of, say, 20,000 a day over the course of six months, which the conflict has gone on for, we're already talking three to four million shells. And it's certainly unsustainable. And this conflict is already a protracted conflict. It's gone on a lot longer than Russia anticipated. Doesn't mean their stockpiles are exhausted, but they're probably getting to a level they're uncomfortable with. You know, they will be contingency planning for a wider war or a future war. We don't know exactly what the type of uh, shells and rockets we're talking about. Most likely one to two millimeter and one five two millimeter shells, as well as MRS rockets, uh, seem the most likely thing. But North Korea does have probably the biggest supply of kind of Soviet era or Soviet era compatible um, shells and rockets, probably outside of Russia. So logically, at least looking at on a practical purpose, it's a logical choice to go to, if not a very diplomatically and political risky strategy. Soviet era, you say, do you have an idea of how good or bad this equipment is that these weapons are? And are they a match for what NATO is sending to Ukraine? It's a bit hard to compare like for like. Obviously, if we're talking about, you know, unguided artillery shells, they haven't really necessarily moved on a massive deal since the Soviet times. There was other ways to compare accuracy, of course, uh, with guided munitions, but that's something we're not really um, looking at in this instance. So I think, in fairness, it's probably comparative to what uh, Russia is using on the types of equipment we're talking about. Of course, there's incidents about how well they're being stored and whether the standards of manufacturing are at the same degree as Soviet-era stuff. It might be comparable. It might not be. Uh, it really depends what systems we're using it on. But again, there's equally concerns about you know how Russia is using and storing these munitions over the decades. 
Of course, uh, North Korea, as you say, is under heavy sanctions and has been for many years. So how has it been developing and making these weapons? Has Russia been helping the Kim regime? Well, I think um, particularly in the kind of the artillery shells and unguided rockets we're talking about, a lot of this predates sanctions of the last few decades. And they set up various, not only were they supplied directly uh, by the Soviet Union and by China as well, particularly um, Chinese copies, they also developed their own independent manufacturing industry, you know, and it certainly has a history of exporting a lot of these systems as well. So they're quite self-sufficient in that respect. And what's in it for North Korea? Is it about helping a good friend? Is it about just a shared interest against the West? Or is it about getting the cash from Moscow? <laughs> good question. We don't know exactly what the deal that is under discussion involves from both sides, to be fair. It's hard to say what, there must be some incentive for North Korea, and it's certainly going to have um, be worth their while to do so. Obviously, North Korea would be willing to sell to anyone, given that they are a bit of a prior state and the sanctions against them. So they're not too fussy who they sell them to. But if we're talking about um, supplying to Russia and in the quantities we're talking about, which you know has been reported as millions, there would obviously be a significant benefit for North Korea. It could be economic, potentially under the guise of humanitarian assistance, or potentially more worryingly to defence analysts like myself, it could be military aid. Obviously, that would, of course, be a breach of sanctions. But whether it's technological transfer or actual transferring of equipment uh, would be interesting to see in the long term. Obviously, this would be done probably in secret and not very visible. Can we deduct from this at all that Russia and North Korea are allies, or is it more complex than that? I think, obviously, they have a long history, particularly the Soviet Union. If we can say North Korea has friends, certainly the two friends it has are China and Russia. Uh, But it is obviously a strange relationship at times and one of mutual convenience, necessarily, rather than pure ideological goals. There has obviously been, you know, the last few years, some indication that Russia is willing to show their support of North Korea. Uh, Obviously, we have to talk of North Korean workers potentially being involved in the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk republics, rebuilding stuff like that, and potential defence cooperation in the longer term. Joseph Dempsey from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, Mike, what's happened on the ground in Ukraine this week that we need to know about? Well, uh, it's the offensives, the long-awaited offensives that the Ukrainians are conducting. And of course, we're all looking at what's happening in Kherson. And the Ukrainians there have opened up a long front, 160 kilometres, and they're penetrating it in three places, in the, towards the south of Kherson, towards the northwest, and now the northeast of Kherson, uh, quite a long way around to the northeast, which gives them a chance of, of uh, putting pressure on uh, Novokokovka, which is the second big city on the Dnieper River. They've taken all the bridges down, they've attacked the bridges, keep on attacking them. And if they can isolate 20,000 Russian troops, they can persuade them then or give them the choice that they've got to withdraw from Kherson and Novokokovka mm. so that the Ukrainians can walk in. While that has been going on, a miniature version of that has opened up in the last two days north of Izium. And here the Ukrainians have taken uh, Balaklia and they're moving now, as we speak, towards Kupiansk. And if they can do that, it's literally like a, a microcosm of what's happening in Kherson, because they would then be able to bring their artillery up, bombard the crossing points over the Oskil River and isolate all of the Russians at Izium which is a big centre for the attack on the rest of the Donbass, onto Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. Michael Clark, stay with us. And now we've got another extra edition of the BFBS SITREP podcast for you this week, as we do when we have remarkable stories to share at length. 
This one belongs to former Royal Marine Toby Gutteridge. On a special forces operation in Afghanistan, aged 24, he was shot in the neck, leaving him quadriplegic, only able to move his head. But he has now written about his story to share how he rebuilt his life from scratch. He's been telling Claire Sadler about that and the moment that nearly ended his life, but instead changed it forever. So we were on a, a job after a certain high-value target. I remember, yeah, getting on the helos, putting my headphones on, just listening to some good music, trying to get, you know, a bit psyched up. And then, yeah, I remember we got off the helo. Uh, we did quite a long walk-in that night um, so that we were undetected. That took us quite late into the night. Then it starts to get a bit hazy. Uh, I do know that we assaulted a compound. My team was first in through the door once we'd sort of secured the area and as I went through with my team the enemy had kind of already set up strategic places and they knew where we were coming from. As we went through we didn't really stand a chance. It was just a burst of fire in the night and unfortunately one of the rounds went, yeah, I got shot through the neck um, and it hit my spine which ultimately paralyzed me from the neck down. The second round ricocheted off my helmet, which would have killed me instantly. But, um, you know, we have a Kevlar helmet and that saved my life. But ultimately, yeah, I was paralyzed from that moment on. And that's all I can remember, really. And that moment of being shot, have you filled in with sort of what happened next from talking to the people that you were on that operation with? Yeah, that's where I've sort of filled in the blanks and some of it, feels vaguely familiar, but for me it was just lights out after that. And presu presumably they assumed the worst at that point, did they? Absolutely, yeah. Not only just because of the way I fell, but yeah, usually when there's no screaming or shouting, you know it's going to be pretty serious when someone goes down, but uh, they dragged me out. I was going to say, they're in the middle of a, of a firefight. That's right, yeah. So that team would have gone on, kept on assaulting the compound, but... Behind, the next guys would have been coming in and dragging me out. So for you, I assume the next thing that you remember is waking up in a hospital? I mean, for me, yeah, the next thing I remember is waking up in a hospital in Birmingham. I haven't got a clue where I am or what's going on or what happened. So yeah, very confused. Um, very scary time, actually, and I'm not afraid to admit it. It was very scary. Was, was that the lowest point, do you think? No, that wasn't the lowest point. Definitely not. Um, at that point, you still, you just can't believe it, really. You don't really realise how tough it's going to get. It's only after maybe three or four years, and then you start to realise, damn, this is hard, it's every day. You just have to grind it out. I have learned to deal with it a lot. You know, it wasn't all down to myself. I had a lot of help. And then my unit, they have an association there, the SPS, have their association and they've helped me a lot. So, yeah, they've been instrumental in, in me building my life back together. How does it feel to be at a point of having written a book? Yeah, it's actually really good. Um, it's something you never really imagine yourself doing. And it talks just about what you can do if you put your mind to it. And yeah, you can rebuild your life from scratch. And for you, what is it that keeps you, keeps you going? Um, that's a very good question. I think there's more than one thing. 
I have realized that it's, it's actually quite a privilege to still be alive. And I want to make every moment count. Um, I think my injury has taught me that this world is actually so amazing and beautiful. I think I was given a second chance, and if I were to throw that away, that's, that's, uh, that's quite insulting, I think. How many people get given a second chance at life? Former Royal Marine Toby Gutteridge talking to Claire Sadler about his new book, Never Will I Die. And as I said, there's much more from their conversation on an extra edition of the BFBS SITREP podcast, including how education and his love of extreme sports both played key roles in building his new life. You can find it online now at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Michael Clark. Toby's story is it's a reminder, isn't it, that we so rarely hear about the work of the UK Special Forces. And when we do, it's almost always when things have gone particularly badly, as happened to Toby. Uh, we can never get to mark their successes or understand the importance of what they've achieved. No, it's very difficult because they form a sort of a holy order um, because they don't boast about what they do. They only they recognize it amongst themselves. And think about special forces, you know, the, the special forces won't win you any wars, but they are the most essential combat enabler, a combat multiplier. Um, they make other things work because what's special about them is not that just that they can deliver paralyzing violence on their enemies, but that they can exist in any organization operation. They can actually survive and do things that other people can't do. But of course, they pay a price. And mm. you know, everyone is brave at the time. When, when somebody's injured, they always say, they're always wonderful in the first year after their injury. But as Toby said there, it's actually after three or four years, that's the tough time. The price they Indeed. pay is, is always a long-term price. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time. Uh, that's it for now. My thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.